My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin, a spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. What is it like being a sex therapist? And what if your spouse suddenly comes out to you as Polly eight years into your monogamous marriage? And what's the difference between minor attraction and pedophilia? Are you a pedophile if you're attracted to kids? Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin. Thank you so much for listening. You're going to hear about these really compelling and important topics today thanks to an incredible expert you may recognize from the podcast, Sluts and Scholars. That's your hint for now. I will introduce her properly in a second here. We will be covering some subject matter that may be difficult for some folks to hear, so please do take care of yourself as needed, whether that means skipping portions or opting out completely. I don't think I could have discussed pedophilia and minor attraction at various times in my own life, so I completely understand. For everyone else, I think you'll find that there's a lot for us to learn, and today's guest is known for bringing a very compassionate and knowledgeable voice to these controversial topics. First, a big shout out to today's product sponsor, The Pleasure Chest, a sex positive store with locations in New York City, Chicago, and LA, and a robust online shop at thepleasurechest.com. They offer free workshops on everything from butt sex basics to rope bondage, and that is just this month in West Hollywood. They're also hosting me for a live Girl Boner radio recording on October 7th. I'll be chatting with essayist Erica Garza and Olympian-turned-mental health advocate Susie Favor-Hamilton about intimate writing. I featured both Erica and Susie in my Girl Boner book, which you can now purchase on Amazon, and most anywhere books are sold. Learn more on my website. That's augustmclaughlin.com. For more Girl Boner fun, sign up for occasional extras by email while you're there. And if you click on the Appearances tab, you can get details on all of my upcoming book release happenings in New York City and Boise and Portland and more. Now, I am so pleased to welcome Nicoletta Heidegger. Did I say that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, I'm so pleased to welcome Nicoletta Heidegger to the show. Nicoletta is a registered marriage and family therapy associate here in Los Angeles. She received her BA in psychology from Stanford University, her master's in clinical psychology from Pepperdine, and her master's of education in human sexuality from Widener University. And she's currently pursuing her PhD in human sexuality from Widener. When she's not working with clients, Nicoletta serves as the Director of Operations for the Golden Coast Sexual Health Alliance, which promotes an integrated interdisciplinary approach to sexuality with the goal of fostering cooperation and dialogue among diverse professionals. Nicoletta also creates awesome monthly videos about issues relating to sexuality and mental health and puts out weekly content via her growing hit podcast and live SiriusXM show, Sluts and Scholars, contributes regularly to other columns, podcasts, and blogs about sex, relationships, and mental health. Learn more at NicolettaVHeidegger.com. Thank you for joining me. It's so weird to hear some Someone else do my bio because we're usually doing it for people such as yourself on our podcast and so I'm like oh this is awkward <laughs> yeah hear all my stuff yeah thanks for having me I'm so happy that you're here thank you for bringing your expertise I had so much fun on your show yes and if you haven't checked it out go look it up yeah I think we had a I don't know when this will be released but a recent episode <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so I love that you work as a sex therapist it's such an important field what drew you into it initially? Well, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley um, in Chatsworth, which is known for pornography production <laughs> and Charles Manson, but that's another, that's another <laughs> thing. Not known for a lot of stuff, so I feel like it was destined. But growing up in Los Angeles, I don't know, I just witnessed a lot of not great relationships and sexuality things. I was lucky that my parents were pretty open with me in terms of learning about sex and asking them questions. So people would always end up coming to ask me questions or like in sex ed classes, they would have me ask the questions for them. Um, and so then when I went to college, I ended up working at the like sexual health peer resource center there, which gave out free condoms. You could come in for peer counseling, uh, buy sex toys. They offered classes and outreach things. 
Uh, and then in my senior year in college, I was uh, the mascot, <laughs> the tree. You were the Stanford. mascot? Yes. <laughs> like you dressed up as the tree? Yes. The person who dances at the football games and basketball games. How did you get that gig? Oh, my gosh. Well, that's that's another a whole other story. Uh, I will tell you after this. Um, so then I ended up writing a sex column um, called Sex Talks with the Tree. And it all just kind of it all just kind of <laughs> came together. But the mascot gig. Oh, that was a lot of fun. Probably best year of my life. Um, it's a two week long process and you have to do these stunts in public to show off your personality. Um, and then there's some like, you know, interviews and other Wow. Secret happenings. What a fascinating social experiment just to put yourself out there. Like, Well, there hadn't been a female tree in, I think, over a decade. Um, so it was predominantly men. And I was like, fuck that. Uh, so I decided to go for it. Wow. That's so fascinating. Do you have a typical day? Um, in terms of right now? Yeah. Days are long right now. So I'm an associate, which means that I'm not fully licensed yet. So I just finished my 3,000 hours um, needed to become licensed. How many weeks is that? <sighs> Let's see. I started seeing clients at the beginning of 2014. Okay. So it's taken like four years um, to finally get to this place. And uh, you know, it, it depends how much you work. You can do it in a little bit shorter. But basically, now I have to take like a four and a half plus hour long exam to actually get my license. But uh, a usual week, I would say, um, Mondays is kind of my off day uh, to do things that I need to do and uh, supervision with my supervisor. But some days, like on Tuesdays, I'll see clients from like nine until nine. Um, with wow. breaks in between. That's like my longest day. But because I share the office, I just take the space when I can get it. So I'll see clients all day with, you know, breaks in between and things like that. Um, Wednesdays, I'll usually see clients until the late afternoon. Um, and then I'll spend the evening with my partner. And then Thursdays, um, I see clients. Then we do our radio show on Sirius XM. Then we record our podcast. Um, and then Friday, I'll see clients most of the day too. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, it's definitely a lot. And I think once I get licensed, I'll have a bit more flexibility. But as an associate, you kind of, you know, you're hustling. Yeah, and getting all those hours so that you can move right. forward. And you're splitting what you get paid with your supervisor. And so it's a lot of work. So you have to work <laughs> double to to make yes regular. <laughs> yes, exactly. A oh, lot wow. of people have like secondary jobs. I just work in private practice right now. I've been lucky to have that as an opportunity and a pretty full practice, um, which for me right now is about like 20 clients. Did you have a specialty in mind when you started or have you come to one through this work that you want to focus especially on? A specialty in sex? Um, I don't think I have one right now. I, I love seeing people from diverse walks of life. I think as an associate, you just kind of want all the experience you can get. So to be fully licensed by um, an organization known as ASECT, the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, you need to have uh, more experience in like diverse areas. So I'm kind of like, you know, come on, come all, like, <laughs> uh, just come see me in my office. And I don't know. I, I think it's still in progress. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting, though. It is. I mean, it's definitely broad. I think when I first started, I was also seeing kids as clients because um, I was working in a community mental health center. Um, and now probably when people look me up, they might not want to send their kids to me. <laughs> yeah. If they're not looking for right. the sexy stuff so much. Exactly. But I am, you know, marriage and family therapy covers all of that. And I'd like to think I'm good with kids and have had lots of experience with them. But the office I work in now isn't as kid-friendly. Yeah. Whereas, It'd be great if people did want to have, you know, support around sexuality for kids, but I could see totally. there being a huge gap there. Like, totally. They think you're going to tell them to have sex or something. Right. I mean, that's something we talk about a lot on our podcast, that somebody who is maybe sexual and talks about their sexuality in such an open way has these stigmas around them. And so I think being able to be good with kids and be a sexually open person is something that like isn't seen as proper yeah. to a lot of people. It's so true. I have friends, as I'm sure you do, who are mothers and in the sex education space. And sometimes they have to have two identities or if they don't, some of them I know have had a lot of really, I think, cruel responses mm -hmm. to like, how dare you talk about this stuff? And it's right. like, that's really, it's sad. And of course, if you're a sex worker, that's like a big no-no. 
So I know people who have been prior or current sex workers, but also want to do, you know, other humanitarian work and things with kids. And they've been rejected from groups. They've been like found out and have been like fired from positions. Mm-hmm. Um, like one one woman we had on our podcast um, who goes by Jupiter Slut, she uh, was a teacher. And when they found out that she had sort of a, you know, sex educational blog, um, she got fired. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's so sad. Yeah. So but it's, uh, that's why we're doing this work, right? It's true. Yeah, it's true. And so many people are making a difference. And I love that you are doing so many wonderful things. I want to go to a, a heavier topic first. Sure. I really appreciate that you talk about minor attraction. Uh, it's not something a lot of people talk about. Right. It's a, it's a really – and I have to say it's a – yeah, speaking of working with kids. <laughs> somewhat, right. It's a tender issue for me a bit because I have an extended relative who molested children. Oh, wow. And so it's been something that's been interesting for me to to not I – don't, I don't know if triggered is the right word, but just feeling uh, I have m- personal history attached to people being attracted to kids. Totally. So there have been times in my life where I was very black and white about it, mm-hmm. and it was just like – you know, if you think that way, then that is bad and you should go to jail kind of thing. I mean, yeah. not, maybe not that extreme, but I realize that it's it's much more nuanced than that. A lot of folks who do um, act against children or abuse against children may not identify as a pedophile or attracted to minors. It often happens for other reasons, whether that be like a power dynamic or other abuse factors. And so I think it also shortchanges the work that we're doing to protect children. Mm, excellent point. So how would you, just in layman's term, define pedophile? Um, I mean, I think I use the word minor attraction, which is kind of broad, just because when someone hears the word pedophile, they immediately think child molester. Yeah. Um, because it's not... I thought that's what it meant. Yeah. It's not like when... Yeah, it's not if they will act on those feelings, it's when. So or we, they have. Right, or they have already done something. So I think they're viewed as like ticking time bombs who um, have harmed children or will definitely harm children. And so they're like this monstrous, stigmatized population. So minor attraction to me basically means someone who, yeah, is attracted to someone under the age of consent. Um, but that's pretty broad too because they're are so many people who have diverse attractions within that. Just like if you said you were gay and someone else said they were gay, it might be a totally different look. Mm -hmm. Or if someone said they were polyamorous and someone else said they were polyamorous, their relationship might look totally different. Right. Um, So someone who is attracted to minors might be primarily attracted to kids who are prepubescent, um, or they might be attracted to kids who are just going through puberty. Um, or they might be like primarily attracted to like late teens. So if they have acted on these desires, then do you change the terminology or you still call it minor attraction? You don't use the word pedophile. I mean, if they're incarcerated, then they would, I guess, be labeled a sex offender. Okay, um, and it. so most of the research and treatment out there is for people who have already offended against children. So they're in the prison system. Um And that's tough because then it's skewed for people who have already offended. Um, And so there isn't a lot of research on people who haven't. But they're a pretty large population um, with some of their own, like, online resources and communities. Which is so interesting because preventing the criminal acts is so important. But if we never study anything else, you know. Well, we don't live in a very, like, preventative culture. In my opinion, like whether it comes to healthcare, whether it's this topic, uh, a lot of the treatment is for after the fact. And yeah. so we, I don't think we talk a lot about doing things beforehand for most stuff in our country. Yeah, it's so true. Do you see minor attraction as an orientation or do you see it as a disposition? Something um, that- I personally have labeled it as an orientation. Um, that doesn't mean that that's okay to act on it which I think is really tough because that would make it the only orientation um, that you can't do anything about legally. Mm. Uh, But there's a researcher, um, Michael Cito, who some minor attracted people have mixed feelings about, um, but he's kind of the only one who's really done research um, around that and sort of came out at the forefront of like labeling that in the broader community as an orientation. Um, 
But the research that we do have, though it's small, kind of shows that that attraction develops the same way as other orientations. Interesting. So I'm sure the assumption by many people and what I would have thought would be it comes from being abused or, Mm. you know, something happens to you that it's not because of the fact that it seems like something that you wouldn't act on, you know, or that you you shouldn't act on. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an on, from the, the research that we do have, from whether it's from incarcerated individuals or the little research we have on folks who haven't offended, um, that's uh, the word for that is NOMAP, non-offending minor attracted person. Um, and so the research that we do have shows that there isn't a correlation between abuse um, and abusing uh, for minor attracted people. That being said, there are people who have been abused that do abuse but not every pedophile or minor attracted person has had abuse. Uh Um, In fact, so I just recently presented at the ASECT conference um, in Denver a couple months ago, and I presented on this topic. And I brought two no-maps, non-offending minor attracted people with me um, to present. And neither of them had had any history um, of abuse. And they're part of these kind of online communities that offer support and resources and education. Uh, But it was a really moving experience to see them be viewed as, like, humans by other people. That feels so brave to me. It was tough. It was definitely tough. Wow. So if it's an orientation, let's say this is something that people are, you know, it's born, it happens, it's Mm -hmm. natural, all this stuff. Then the piece of not being able to act on it, is that tormenting? Do people sometimes... They're attracted to minors and they're also attracted to a lot of other people. Or is it more exclusive typically? So there are, I think it's, I don't know if I would say half-half, but there's definitely people from each. Um, So like, for example, one of the people that I brought um, for this presentation is um, primarily minor attracted. Um, But the other person has a successful relationship with an adult person um, and is also attracted to adults the same amount. Um, And so I guess it's... If we were labeling it as an orientation, it would be like, where on the spectrum do you fall uh, in terms of like attraction to same sex or attraction to something else? Yeah, yeah. It definitely, I think that's one of the big issues in research around this population is they're kind of viewed as like a homogenous group of child molesters um, as opposed to a really different, diverse, heterogeneous individual people. And do you see this across the gender spectrum as well? People of all different gender identities having this attraction? Um, The research that's out there now primarily shows it as um, men. Uh, Caucasian men, I think, is like the highest percentage. But I do wonder how accurate stuff is just because of like who's coming forward and who's actually talking about this because it's such a I mean I'm grateful for you for even asking and knowing your history and like knowing maybe how it makes you feel to even ask about this topic Um, and for you listeners you know to even approach this or continue listening like it's a tough topic yeah Um, but I yeah I think it's you got to learn where that's coming from for you like where that fear is coming from. Yeah. But I think the the toughest thing and what inspired me to um, want to work with this population, and I myself don't identify <laughs> as minor attracted, but what spoke to me about it is when I was at Widener for one of my programs, we had somebody come to one of our classes and they were just talking about their experience. They had not offended and all of the therapists that they had gone to had turned them away um, because they didn't feel comfortable talking with them. And so, you know, because there are legal and ethical things that as a therapist, you need to report if you have like clear evidence that something is going on against children or, you know, whatever it is. And I think a lot of therapists were afraid when they heard that attraction because they also thought, oh, well, this means there's going to be some child abuse happening and I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. Um, And so, this person had gotten turned away from a lot of therapists, which is a pretty common experience for um, for no maps. And they couldn't find any like resources or support groups. And so they're essentially like living um, 
stigmatized, living a secret life, uh, living in fear, and then they end up isolating themselves. And research that we do have just about social isolation and stuff, that's where the problem comes up. Mm. Like imagine we're not offering resources. This person has no social support. They have no maybe real relationships, romantic or otherwise. Um, And then we expect them not to potentially do something harmful. And they also probably are learning, as so many of us do, that if you have those inclinations, then you are going to act out. Right, right. You know? So why wouldn't you? I right. mean, like if it's going to happen anyway. Right. Oh, that's really, it's really sad. And I'm really grateful to you for sharing in this way because I feel like I can have compassion for for people understanding those kinds of things. Even though I haven't experienced it myself, it changes the awareness is really helpful. Well, what changed it for me was thinking and watching that presentation when I first um, saw that at Widener. I was like, I'm so lucky that I get to engage in and act on the fun things that I like to do sexually. And I have the freedom and the privilege to do that. Imagine if you could never act on anything sexual that you wanted. Mm-hmm. And there was like literally no potentially legal or other outlet to do that. Wow. So the the treatment for somebody in that situation isn't to try to change their desires. It's to help them cope and thrive? Yes. So what kinds of things? Obviously, I think virtual reality, is, is that a possibility? Are there, is it a healthy thing from your perspective for somebody to be able to engage without hurting a person, but engage in those fantasies? And Yeah. I mean, I've talked to folks who have said that their fantasy life is important to them and that's been helpful in their healing experiences. I think there are people out there who still have that fear like, oh, well, if you give them a little bit, they're going to want more. Mm. Um, Like if you find a way to have porn that is legal, that doesn't include real children, that like that's going to be, I don't know. Yeah, the gateway. Exactly. And I don't personally believe that, but I think, like I said, there's not enough research. Yeah. So we do we do need more research. Um, there is there's a group in Germany that does this thing called Project Dunkelfeld, and there it's a bit different because they don't have mandated reporting laws, meaning the therapists do not are not mandated to turn folks in when they've admitted um, offending behavior. Mm. Um, and so it's allowed a bit more, I think, of like an honest therapeutic rapport and connection. Um, but I think that we just need more research here to use preventative programs. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's huge. It seems like it's a big missing piece. It's treating them as human beings, <laughs> uh, the first and foremost. So like just like any client would come into my office and want to be seen as an individual with unique experiences and unique intersections, it's the same for that. So not having assumptions, dealing with my own what therapists call countertransference, which is like my own reactions and feelings to this person. So if I've maybe, like you were saying, had someone in my family or had my own experiences of abuse, asking myself, can I work with this person? Can mm-hmm. I be helpful for them? And making sure that I have resources if I don't feel comfortable. Um, I think it's being clear and knowing the laws and legal, legal ethical things in the state that you practice, whether you're an educator or a therapist, and knowing that Uh, fantasy is not behavior. So fantasy is not reportable. Just because someone expresses a fantasy to you doesn't necessarily mean anything. A lot of people fantasize about illegal things. Yes, totally. I fantasize like about not even sexually stuff all the time. Like if someone cuts me off in traffic, I'm like, oh, I wish I had like stuff to throw at their car or just like, you know, little things all the time. Um, So I think that's important. I think definitely um, helping them find communities to get support Uh, So connecting them with other people who are also determined not to act on that and to have friends and meaningful relationships where they can be themselves. Um, I think figuring out and helping them balance that part of their life and other parts of their life. Mm -hmm. So if they are not out about that, which many aren't because of the stigma around it, how do they balance that with work? How do they balance that with friendships? How do they balance that with their family? Um, And if people do know dealing with maybe grief about being ostracized um, and potentially having lost their jobs. I think another portion is helping them find legal, ethical ways to express their sexuality, which Mm -hmm. I think takes a bit of creativity. I think there are some things that I would maybe suggest to people that 
other folks might be afraid of because they're worried like, oh, is this a gateway? Ah, interesting. Interesting. Have you seen some success stories? There were these individuals we spoke with. Is there any kind of hope you can give to anyone listening who experiences this? And Yeah, I don't know if those folks would define themselves as quote unquote success stories because I think they maybe still face, I mean, we all face adversity in our lives. But um, I have great respect for the folks that came and helped me at my presentation. And like I said, one um, one helps others with this and helps lead trainings and things for therapists and educators and other uh, minor attracted people to get the help that they need. And so I don't know if they feel successful in that, but I think it's a great success what they're doing. And they've really like helped put together uh, an empire on that. And the other person um, is successful in their life and in their job and has a successful relationship where they can be open about this and share their their mm-hmm. fantasies and their struggles. That's um, amazing. So I think it's totally possible. And For people to thrive. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. And there are, like I was saying, I think there's there are ways to potentially express oneself in a safe way that maybe some people would cringe at. Um, but what would be an example? In some countries, they have um, lifelike dolls, um, which I think is disturbing for some people to see. But the interesting thing is there's so much porn out there that features youth, um, especially if we're looking at um, like anime or cartoon porn. There's a lot there that features children. Yeah. But it's cartoon. Right. So it's quote unquote okay. Right. Um, I think some folks have turned to like legal pictures of children, which I think would disturb other folks knowing that like they're this, having a sexual thought. Yeah, they're having they're a sexual thought of this like kid on a beach or whatever. Kid, yeah, just like mm-hmm. a normal photo. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I do believe it's a it's a spectrum. I'm not saying everyone out there listening has some attraction to children, but I think as humans, we're just curious about the human body. Yeah. And I know lots of people who have not expressed having this orientation, but who have had like fleeting thoughts if they've been at a spa or if they've been whatever and seen like a naked person of any age. Yeah. They were just like, oh, what, what is that? Like, I'm curious. Right. Um, but I don't think we ever talk about that. Totally. Totally. I'm glad you brought up porn because I've wondered, and this changes if, if it's a orientation, then this wouldn't be the case. But I've I think because of my family history, yeah. it's really hard for me to see really youthy bodies in mm. porn. And that's one of the biggest categories is like teen porn. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to wonder, and I wonder what your thoughts are, does that not create an orientation, but does that in the same way that beauty standards that are so harsh mm. can affect the way that we try to appear and what we look for and how we define attraction do you feel like there's a risk to having so much kind of, quote, youth-obsessed porn that would potentially create some desire that wouldn't otherwise be so strong? I don't know if it's creating the desire as much as it is an outlet for people who already have that interest. But I do agree with you that, like, as a culture, we really value youth. And so it's a weird dichotomy because on one hand, we value youth and we value beauty and we often are sexualizing kids in the I mean not that that's bad like kids do have a sexuality which I think is the other tough part here not not that I'm saying they can consent to being with an adult like right but I do not agree beings. with that but yeah but they're most <laughs> yeah. our people are born as sexual beings yeah and so um that's the way they're also marketed with maybe the clothes they wear or the marketing like from a young age and so it's this weird thing where it's mm-hmm. like we're going to show you this but it's not okay to like it but we also know it sells so I don't know. It's yeah, just really it's like sticky. You, uh, yeah, it totally is sticky. I, what, I do, do you, what do you think about the, the porn stuff? I personally want to see so much more diversity, including of age. Mm-hmm. And not just in porn, but I want more sex scenes of older people in movies. And I want, you know, I feel like there's a lot of ageism. Yeah. And so for me, I do have fear. And again, this could be from personal experience and family stuff. But 
it, it scares me that if there's so much of that, because I know that also not or we don't change our orientation. Like we don't just go, oh, I'm going to be that orientation or anything. But just I know that what we're attracted to, we, we do have some control over. Like if we want to be really turned on by oranges, if we masturbate with oranges all the time, we might start to develop like a little sexy thing about oranges. Like we can. Which I guess is consensual. You know. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I, I think that. But orange, I know what you mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, I I do think we're we've moved in. I know there is a lot of diversity in porn, yeah. and there's everything that's out there. But I don't think it's like when you think porn star, you never think like seventy year old. Yeah, I mean that category for seventy year old is definitely out there. Totally. <laughs> but I guess we could wonder that about any category. Yeah. Like if you're hyper focused on one thing and you've depended on that to get you off. Yeah. Um, can you become too focused? Right. And that's a personality thing, too, I think. And I, I have an addictive personality. So I think that I just So, like, you know what myself. you like and well, you stick with it? I just know not to go to things that, like, I try to have some parameters in my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, if I, I try to channel my addictive personality to positive things. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just think if I were always looking at a certain thing or always masturbating the exact same way or whatever, you know... I can get compulsive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, an additional, this is like sidestepping back to what we were talking about before, but I think that uh, the kink, uh, like BDSM scene has also been a way for people to explore um, some of those fantasies that might not be legal in practice, but finding role play ways to do it. Like one of the people who did speak at the talk, um, and I, I refer to them like anonymously because they are anonymous. Like these folks are very afraid of what people finding out, like how that will affect their life and their livelihood. Um, But one has, you know, does role play with their partner in a way that feels, um, I think, probably good enough and like satiating and fun because they also like adults. Um, But I think there's space for that, too. And then it's between adults. Right. Yeah. So there's no no cut and dry one way, which is. With all sexuality. Yeah. Is, yeah. The- but I, I agree. I, I think I agree with you about the porn stuff. Like, I know that maybe there's categories that I've liked and preferred. And if I am, like, searching around for maybe something else, sometimes I'll go back to what I know that yeah. I like. That, like, particular theme, that particular category, that particular scene that I know is, like, a an easy, yeah. an easy off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, like, if you – I was – when I was acting – I did a sex scene by myself, but there was an imaginary man. It's a long story. I want to hear about this. <laughs> I'll share the video with you sometime. But literally, the audition was like, okay, pretend you're having sex with somebody on that couch. I'm like, all right. Um, it was a really fun job, though. But it's funny because the song that was playing, when I hear it, I get like instantly turned on. Interesting. Yeah, because to me, it was such a visceral experience. I like really put myself into you know this into character theory. yes i took it very seriously <laughs> so good acting <laughs> it was it was really fun Meth- method but, acting right when right? you get into it absolutely absolutely it's so fascinating and again thank you for speaking to this because i think it's it is a such a sensitive topic to so many people and to be able to have more understanding seems so vital it's comforting to me i mean i think i for some reason, like things that are taboo. So that also fits into my like academic and therapeutic interests. And even sex. <laughs> and even sex, yeah. yeah. But I, I've i been interested in this topic and speaking out about it does have consequences. Like I have had videos that I've posted about it that, so I, I like you said in my introduction uh, so eloquently, I do videos like for my website for prospective clients to you know, see what I'm doing, what kind of topics I cover. Um, And one of those is about minor attraction. And oh my gosh, the comments on this video, some are great and supportive and wonderful. Um, And people are like, I'm so grateful that you did this. You know, this is my experience and other people are interested to learn. But I also get like death threats um, and other things like that. Like, you know, people saying really horrible, awful things and, you know, they should all be dead and uh, you should be dead too for talking about this and just mm. you know awful things so it is a it is risky yeah also how do you deal with that kind of trolly criticism it fuels me 
Does it? It's fire. <laughs> I just saw it come out of your, like, flames coming out of your ears a little bit there. She's like, I'm, I'm like, yes, this. hate <laughs> me. I love it. Which <laughs> is kind of perfect because it's people bashing you and all they're doing is bolstering just you. Bolster. Yeah, I'm like, yes, raise me up. Yeah. Thank you for your hate. Totally. It builds my pyramid. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I mean, it's tough sometimes to read it because I also, I've thought about disabling comments on stuff like that because I don't want the minor attracted people the non-offending ones to read that because it just feeds stuff they already feel and know so I'm more concerned for their reaction sure for me I'm just like I have empathy for those folks too who say the shitty things to me because I know where it's coming from Mm -hmm. it's coming from maybe their own experience it's coming from fear it's coming from um, ignorance around this topic and from cultural just cultural assumptions. And they think they're protecting kids. Totally. I mean, they think this yeah. is how I... And that's what I want, too. And that's actually probably... Well, I want to protect all humans. Yeah. And the people who are seeking support are also wanting to protect kids, it sounds yes. like. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Otherwise, why would they be seeking support? Totally. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, it fuels me. Like, it. I've always been like that, though. Like, when I was the mascot, a lot of people hate the Stanford tree because it's just a ridiculous mockery. It is kind of funny. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've seen it or like familiar. It's technically the unofficial mascot, but it's definitely hated by lots of universities and people because we do silly things. Um, Like I would have to have security at games um, because people try to come after you. Oh, wow. Yeah, we call it tree protective services, which is so ridiculous. Um, But I've had like drunk fans tackle me and like people assault me in the costume and you know, people say terrible things and that would just like, of course, I didn't want to get injured, but I would just wave and smile. Wow. Were you fueled <laughs> by that as well? Totally. It was great. <laughs> so I have a question that kind of relates to another somewhat taboo subject of unconventional sure. relationships. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I chose this question. I received it recently before I knew that we were going to be potentially talking about um, non-monogamous relationship styles. Isn't and it I, great to get yeah. questions from listeners? It's my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Send and, more listeners. Yeah, send them to both of us. Sluts and Scholars and Girl Boner, we Thank you. can't get enough. It's And it's such a beautiful thing to be trusted, too. For right, me. I'm sure you hear other people's like stories and testimonies, too. Yeah, 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 it's really touching. So this question came from RJ, who wrote this. My wife of eight years suddenly said she is polyamorous. She says she's falling in love with a coworker, though she swears they have not been intimate. She says she loves me as much as ever as well, which is hard for me to understand. I'm trying to be open-minded, but this really sucks. I go back and forth from angry and confused and like my heart is being stomped on to wondering if I can or should try to change her. I feel like I have failed as a husband. We have not spent a lot of time together the past few years. Could that be the reason? I want our marriage. I want her to be happy. I want us both to be happy. She said therapy won't help because she's afraid she will just be judged, and I am at a loss as for what to do. First, here is what Dr. Megan Fleming of Great Life, Great Sex had to say. RJ, I have the utmost compassion um, for you in answering this question because it definitely seems like after eight years of marriage, in some ways you were very blindsided, right, when your wife has disclosed that she's polyamorous. And... You know, it's unclear to me whether this is a new revelation for her. It sounds like it might be. Um, but to me, the work for the both of you is just beginning, right? That first of all, she's on her own journey of self-discovery to sort of self-identify and believe and experience that she's polyamorous um, and really has the capacity, right, to have love for more than one person as, you know, some of us do. I mean, and, and different kinds of love, um, as I say that. And so... Um, but it's also sort of an expectation or assumption that you're just supposed to get on board. And I see this a lot as a, a couples therapist and sex therapist where, you know, sometimes it's when they're dating. Sometimes it's, in, as in your case, um, after they've been married a number of years, all of a sudden one partner decides that, you know, they want to renegotiate the fidelity or think about um, alternatives like open marriages or polyamory. And so you know, that really is, you know, the crisis is an opportunity, but it certainly is an opportunity to explore what does this mean and how it does or doesn't fit into your marriage. Um, You know, it's striking to me that um, she's saying that therapy wouldn't help or that would be judgmental because, you know, as a therapist, I'm somewhat insulted. I mean, I can understand how someone might have that perspective, but, you, you know, 
you're going to look for the right therapist and there even are polyamorous therapists out there. Um, so certainly finding somebody who feels like they're informed, they're educated, they're compas- compassionate, non-judgmental. Um, I think that's a hallmark of being a therapist to be non-judgmental. Um, but if she's still not interested, then, you know, I think that's a sign in of itself. And even if she's just sort of being help rejecting in that way, but certainly when, if she's not interested in going, I'd encourage you to go. Um, so you can explore the feelings that are coming up for you and, you know, how you're going to navigate this and, and how you're going to figure out sort of those right next steps. Um, because, you know, another thing you bring up and it's sort of a tangent, but, but related, which is the fact that, you know, I never want you to feel, you know, bad as a partner, but I think all relationships are co-created and it is important. And I want everybody who's listening to really understand this, that um, when, you know, when we're in relationship, we all have a way of sort of taking our partners for granted, for granted. And we're not in a sense, what I call watering the grass. And by that, I mean, you know, we have the expression, the grass is greener on the other side. And I'm like, no, it's where you water it, right? (laughs) You know, we can't scream at the grass and expect it to grow. We have to nurture it and water it. And I think that these really fundamental basic skills of relationships and having happy, sexy ones are skills that a lot of us um, don't have. Or as you said, like life gets really busy and we get distracted. And really, from my perspective, we um, that's sort of a dangerous situation if your life is getting so hectic that you're not prioritizing yourself, you know, and that self-care, as I always say, isn't selfish, but also the relationship. So here, I definitely want to take the opportunity for you and anyone listening to realize, always be watering the grass, right? Always be prioritizing your relationship. But when and if you get to a disconnected place, and in this context, your wife has discovered uh, the sense of, you know, identifying as polyamorous, that's a whole other new situation. And so I'm going to go back to where I started, which is absolutely get into therapy. And when, if worst case, she's not interested, go for yourself. Um, that being said, I always love to give resources, right? So um, in the meantime, I would definitely say check out the website. It's also a book by the same title, more than two, more than two.com. And the other, and it's been around, it's in its third edition now, is The Ethical Slut. The Practical Guide to Polyamory, Open Relationships, and Other Freedoms in Sex and Love. So those are two great resources, um, but I definitely want, I'm so glad you asked this question, and I want you to know, first of all, you're not alone, and that absolutely there are many resources available, so um, this is not a journey to go on your own. So as always, love to hear how it goes. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan, and thank you again, RJ, for your question. I think it's a really important one. What would you add to that? Um, I liked a lot of the things that Dr. Megan said. I would say I agree with most of the points she made. Just to add, um, as another reference, um, I really like the book Opening Up by Tristan Terramino. But Opening Up, I think, is more of a couple or more guide um, for it when two people are potentially, like, navigating it together. So, you know, I would wonder what is going on in this relationship. Uh, Like, he's, like, like RJ said, I don't want to assume their gender, like RJ said, things have maybe been distant. And so I would wonder, you know, what's been going on, but also to normalize the human desire that someone could love and care for you and also notice themselves having desires for other people and that it's really vulnerable and great that they felt comfortable to share that with you. I definitely would challenge um, your partner's distrust in the therapy process because there are so many wonderful sex positive therapists out there um, who might be polyamorous themselves or who specialize in that. I'm, I'm someone who works with a lot of people who are poly or just in other alternative relationship setups because I think either way for this to end well, whether that means the relationship between you two will continue or not the way it is now, to find an ethical way to do this because like Dr. Megan was saying, the relationship construct is changing the rules are changing and so how to do this in the best way possible um, where both people will come out you know feeling empowered yeah yeah really well said I have a friend who recently realized she's polyamorous too and she is very excited about this revelation and it's going really well for her but it was interesting because she said to me that she 
realize that she's known this but hadn't discovered it about herself yet. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that's a common experience. Is this something that when people, like it's something that they always know and they're kind of, you know, not sure if they want to act on it or if it's acceptable? Or do you find a lot of people discovering it about themselves along the way? I mean, I think that a lot of people would argue that we're all polyamorous, (laughs) that like human nature is not to be monogamous in the confines and way that we've set it up in our current culture. Um, There's some interesting books on that, including... um, you know, Esther Perel's Mating in Captivity or Sex at Dawn, um, which is another great one if you're just curious about that. So I think some people, like I said, would argue that it's, we're all a little polyamorous. It's just whether we decide to act on it or not. And I think it also brings in the question, is this an orientation? I think Yeah, I've wondered. Yeah, Mm because this person is saying, I am polyamorous, not I practice polyamory. Right, which are different things, right? So yeah, I do wonder. I feel like monogamy is a choice. And but I do think it's also one that some people much more naturally gravitate to regardless of the societal things. That it's just, it feels to me it's like so individual mm-hmm. and that we're fluid too, yeah. you know, as people. So I've y- definitely met people who I think practice non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy, but might not feel like they are non-monogamous, um, like at a core level. And I think there are some people who would say like, you have to be at a core level and like it is an orientation and they've been like this forever. Sure, sure. I think one thing that a lot of people wonder about with polyamory, if they're not very familiar, haven't been exposed to it, is you can have feelings for more than one person. Mm -hmm. But if you're nurturing feelings with more than one person, I think that's where they start feeling like, well, inevitably, you're going to want to choose one. Like, I Mm. feel like that's probably where a lot of people's minds go Mm -hmm. if if you're well, somebody no one wants who's... to feel like they're not chosen. Sure. Which I'm sure maybe yeah. RJ might be something that you're feeling. Yeah. Like yeah. like you said, am I not good enough? Did I not do well enough in this relationship? Starting to question everything. Yeah. And sometimes that's the case. Like sometimes I think the desire to cheat, whether that be in monogamy or non-monogamous relationships, because you can cheat in both, um, is to wonder, you know, are you looking outside of this for something that you're not getting, which can be okay if you've agreed upon that, because one person maybe can't provide everything you're looking for. Right. But to wonder, like, what is it that they're seeking with this other person? Um, And I'd be curious if they if your partner used the word polyamory, um, like, are they just wanting to fuck this new person? Are they really wanting a deep relationship with this person? Like, what are the feelings that are really coming up? Yeah, because those are different, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know Esther Perel talks a lot about uh, specifically what what you were saying um, that I know she believes that it's really important to nurture your own personal eroticism Mm -hmm. and that we're expecting so much from a partner, you know, that now in a relationship we expect like spiritual fulfillment and emotional and physical, everything, mind blowing sex and and perfect domestic partner. (laughs) Oh my gosh. If you, I mean, if you have that in your relationship, like tell me how, because I, I haven't met a lot of people that have all of those things all together at the same time. time. Right. Like, I think it's, I mean, eight, you said eight years they've been together. Like, Mm. Yeah, it's easy to lose erotic interest <laughs> after time if you're not yeah. watering that grass consistently. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. What are some of the other relationship styles that you work with? Um, I have definitely worked with people where one person is monogamous and the other person is polyamorous, which is very interesting to me. Um, so one person has chosen that like either they don't have the time or the desire to be with another person or the emotional capacity and so they've chosen to remain monogamous and yet their partner has multiple partners so maybe they've got a wife um and then a girlfriend um or something like that i've seen people who are monogamous but they might do kink play with other people so it might not go to um penetrative sex practices but they'll do like other kink scenes with people um i've seen folks who are swingers um so Primarily the people I've seen who identify as swingers are mostly doing sex with other people, but they'll maybe maintain friendships with them as well. Um, I mean, it's just there's so many creative options. And it brings up the idea of what is monogamy and how do you define it, right? Because some people define it as no penetrative sex with anybody else. Uh And some people, it's not even about sex. It's like, well, just I don't want you to cultivate emotional intimacy with other people. Yeah, like no sleepovers. Yeah, yeah. No kissing, no touching, no, like what are the, are people confused about that now? Or is it just, I feel like there's more conversation at least. It's not so hidden. I don't know if 
confused is the right word, but I have worked with people who have set that out as a boundary and then they started having feelings that maybe they needed to end up talking about um, or dealing with with themselves. But definitely, I think like Dr. Megan said, it'd be important, be great if you could get to a couples therapist who specialized in navigating that um, or even just going to therapy yourself with someone who specializes in navigating that so you can deal with your own feelings around it too. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, they, RJ said a lot of wonderful things about wanting to support their partner and um, wanting to do that. But I also get that it feels like probably a loss. Yeah. And for, it is a loss of what you thought it was or what right. your, the future of what you were envisioning. And that doesn't have to mean the future is going to be bad. No. It might just be a new chapter. I think. Maybe better. Yeah. I mean, I think even if you're in a monogamous relationship, you might end up being in lots of relationships over time. Yeah. Because that relationship changes. Um, and sometimes it changes together, sometimes it changes apart, but that it's okay to have multiple relationships with the same person yeah. over your life. Which is a really beautiful thing. Like you get to recreate anytime you want. Mm-hmm. And the, the nature of relationship, you know, every relationship kind of hits these points of, of trial. Mm-hmm. And some end up thriving, some don't. Are there certain characteristics you see in relationships, regardless of style, that tend to really facilitate um, a a lasting relationship that's gratifying? I mean, I think the cliche is like good communication. It's like, what does that even mean? (laughs) But I think the fact that, um, for example, like RJ's partner felt comfortable to share that desire, I think that's really important to feel like even if maybe someone has a reaction that you have a safe place to like share desires. Um, I do sometimes have trouble with clients who come in and from the beginning they are not sexually compatible um which is tough like and they never were never were um but they like try ways to make it work Mm -hmm. so I don't want to say that like sex is everything but it's tough because I can't necessarily make two people compatible that aren't I think there's things to do to make it work and work around it and practice and there might be stuff from your past that has made the compatibility an issue um, but I think that's tough so I, I I certainly believe for my own relationships there has to be some kind of like sexual chemistry yeah so it's the compatibility is about chemistry it's not necessarily about a specific fetish or style yeah or... I guess chemistry is like a bad catch-all to use because I don't know if it's necessarily like biological chemical connection though some people believe it is um, in terms of pheromones and hormones and things like that but Yeah, I think if you're wanting to be like, let's say you're entering a relationship and you're definitely wanting to be polyamorous and you choose someone who is monogamous and has no interest in polyamory, it's like, well, what what are you doing? Like, Yeah, unless they're accepting of your polyamory. Totally. But But if you'd like they're just wanting monogamy, you're just wanting poly and you're wanting to change each other. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue is people wanting to change each other. Yeah. As opposed to acceptance of like who the other person is. Does that come from a fear of not finding somebody else more compatible? Or why is it that we will, as a species, tend to kind of, it seems like a theme that people will settle for something thinking I'm going to change this person. I don't know. What do you think it is? I certainly have tons of, you know, my own flaws. But I don't think that that is something I've carried into a relationship is like thinking this person, I'm going to change this person. Mm -hmm. Although I was in a relationship where the person turned out to be pretty manipulative and abusive. Like, like they after. changed for the worse. Their true colors came out. Mm. You and know, I think was... that's common, which sucks. <laughs> yeah. And and I did feel, because I had seen an example of what I thought was the real him, mm-hmm. like this good version. Oh, girl, really... I've been in one of those. It's oh, the worst. It's the worst because you're like, oh, and they I do can, such a good job. At, I can um, save them. I can get them back yeah. to their, yeah. And for listeners you. out there, like, look, it can happen to anyone. Like, I consider us two like independent people who have worked on ourselves and are awesome and smart but like it's easy sometimes to get stuck yeah in things like that yeah especially like you said when they're so good at it yeah I did a series on dating a sociopath oh and I I need to listen to that it was a it was an important one I think and it's one that I still hear from people there's a great Instagram I love that's like it's like narcissistic sociopath something and it's all like recovering from dating somebody like that uh yeah because it is the memes are on point (laughs) Uh, i have to check that out what was the question you were asking before i was asking about compatibility uh okay yeah Yeah. i think people want to change others 
for different reasons. I mean, I can speak to my own personal experiences. I think sometimes it's um, because we're trying to build ourselves up. And so if we feel that we are good enough that someone will change something, it's reaffirming for ourselves. Uh Like, oh, if only I'm lovable enough, if only I'm good enough, like this person will step up and change Mm. for me. Like they haven't been a good guy with other people, but if I'm good enough, they'll be better for me. Oh, I see. Yeah, I could see that. I I think it's also maybe we, at the beginning, it seems like maybe they have all the qualities or potentially we overlooked some of the things that we didn't think were important. we're all high on these, like, Yeah, we're high, totally. Exactly. And then when that fades and you realize maybe they don't have everything you were looking for, I think we live in a culture that's very now instant gratification, especially with all the swipe left, swipe right dating apps, where it's easy to be like, ah, like, I'm tired of this... like addition, I'm going to get the next better one. Or there must be, there's so many other people, there must be something better fitted out there. Mm. So I think it's hard for us to like be content in the moment and always feeling like we need to reach for even better. I think which is true for us personally and for relationships. Yeah. Especially like you said, with the apps. Like FOMO, you feel like you're missing out on yeah. Some other person. Totally. Like if you got a menu with three entrees on it, it's so much easier to choose, right? And if there's 27 awesome entrees, you're like, oh, I want to taste this one. Can, exactly. What's that, per- exactly. What, that person's eating over there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. How, any top dating tip? Is there is there a tip that you have for people navigating this scene in this digital age that you feel like is kind of undershared? Uh, I mean, I think it's a numbers game which is kind of unfortunate to say, but I do think that you have to be willing to put yourself out there and go and try lots of experiences, um, whether that be lots of apps or lots of like in-person experiences, but Mm -hmm. just to put yourself out there and like really put time and effort into it. Mm. Yeah, I like that a lot. A lot of the people that I know, and I would say myself included. But it's hard. Not good matches on the way. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, how many yeah. did you have before oh my gosh. meeting I, something that was good? Well, I will tell you that your par- have, Are you married? Your I'm married, and I have four siblings, and my three sisters all married pretty much their first boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And pretty consistent. You know, they're still married. And my mom— Where, where are you guys from? Minnesota. <laughs> okay, it was a small town. Yeah. No, not yeah, like a small Minnesota. town, but a very, yeah, very Minnesotan. And Because uh, L.A., like, yeah. L.A. is tough. I've dated here. Oh. I get it. It is. It is, yeah. And I actually did meet my husband here. Didn't think that I would, but it was because I was just working on myself and living life and, you know, doing these things. But there were my mom has told people, oh, her love life has been like an interesting movie. You know, she would just follow along and and just it felt like a lot of different. And Mm -hmm. I was in a lot of relationships, too. It wasn't just dating. So it, it took me a long time, I think, to to really get there. But it was all about working on myself. And I know that's a little... Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Like, I'm sure everyone out there has heard that again, but like, (laughs) love yourself first, work on yourself. I do believe that like putting out that energy will attract the kind of person that you're looking for, Mm -hmm. because otherwise you end up dating someone who's on the same um, emotional level that you're on. And so if you haven't maybe gotten to a a higher level and worked on yourself, you're probably going to attract someone who's at that same level. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. That's really true. So what's your biggest uh, professional goal moving forward? You have so many things happening. At the moment, it's past my exam. Mm, what is that? <laughs> um, I am taking it in October. Exciting. Yeah, not exciting. I've been definitely procrastinating uh, my studying. It is a lot of work, a lot uh, of stuff. Um, so that's just like short term. Got to focus on that goal. Yeah. Um, and then I hope to, I'm going to go back and finish my PhD Um I'm excited to be one day Dr. Heidegger, first doctor in my family. So that would be very exciting. Uh, And just to continue to grow my practice and, yeah, grow the podcast, Sluts and Scholars. Yeah. So tell people where they can find you everywhere. I love your social media accounts, by the way. Thank you. I've had some help. So shout out to people who have helped me with social media. Um, If you want to find me personally on social media, you can find me at Ms. Heidegger, M-S-H-E-I-D-E-G-G-E-R on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, The podcast is Sluts and Scholars on Instagram, Sluts 
Scholars on Twitter, uh, and you can email us at slutsandscholars at Gmail. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and then we do a live show on um, SiriusXM Channel 415 um, from 2 to 3 on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And if you're interested in coming in for a consultation or are trying to get into this work, you can visit my website at nicolettavheidegger.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks for listening. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, please subscribe if you haven't on iTunes. You can find the little purple podcast app for most people on their smartphones. You can also follow along on iHeartRadio or Spotify. Thank you so much for listening, and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.